Welcome to the Peace Wanted podcast. Welcome. Today I'm talking to Mel Duncan, who is founder of Nonviolent Peace Force and an armed civilian protection and lifelong activist for social change. So bringing with him ton of ton of ideas and experience. Thank you so much for joining us today, Mel. Your work and your life so full of stories and reflections and achievements. I know that we're only going to scratch the surface, but I'd love you to sort of join us and share about why this is so important and, and the building of peace in our communities. It's good to be with you, Rachel, as always. <laughs> so I, so obviously you've been around since sort of like the development of an armed civilian protection through lots of different countries like that. And I'm sure you have a quick way of explaining this work. So why, why do we need to know about civilians protecting civilians? Well, it's a key element of our mutual survival. The UN High Commission on Refugees reported last year that during this year, we will surpass 100 million of us who have had to flee our homes because of violent conflict and persecution. And that number will rise because of the climate catastrophe, increasing authoritarianism and rising militarism. And if we look at all the current approaches that are designed to protect civilians and to help people stay home, and if we stack them all together and for the sake of this conversation said that they're all effective, and I don't believe that they are for a moment, but if we said that they were, and if we said all the military approaches whether they be state or multilateral, and all the unarmed approaches, whether they be state, multilateral, or done by civil society organizations. And if we stack those all together, they would not come close to meeting present need, and they will not come close at all to meeting the soaring need. And so if we're serious about working with people and helping them to stay home, and more importantly, supporting them to help themselves to stay home, we have to look at effective and affordable and attractive ways for them to be able to stay home. And unarmed civilian protection and accompaniment is one of those key ways where people will be able to face these emerging threats to their very livelihoods and existence and be able to keep their families and themselves safe. And so this is an important approach as we face the emerging problems of this century. So yeah, so you talked a bit of, quite a bit there about sort of like the risks and the threats and, and, and all of that. And they're pretty huge at the moment in terms of like number of wars, number of cities that experience violence and different types of violence. And you think they're sort of like, this is just going to grow. I think that clearly that's what the indicators are showing. The intergovernmental 
panel on climate change in a recent report said that we're looking at a rapidly closing window until there will be irreversible uh, damage done to billions yeah. of people yeah. in this planet. And if you look at just one of the places where we work, yeah. a place where I was in February and March in South Sudan, where we have been working with people who have faced tremendous violence because of a war that reignited in 2013. And this is now a multi-generational war. They've had to deal and been on the front lines of violent conflict. They are now on the front lines of the climate crisis because there are floods that are not receding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was in a place called Bentu in the north where there has been flooding that has not receded for three years. Yeah. And so people are fleeing not only the violence, but are fleeing the war in South Sudan. And now our people are coming because they are fleeing the war in Sudan. And so this is catastrophe compounded on top of yeah. catastrophe. Yeah. And we're not going to deal with those kinds of situations by bringing in more guns. The armed peacekeepers no. from the UN are there. I see them driving around in their armored personnel carriers with their bulletproof or their flak jackets on and their helmets. They don't even get out of their vehicles. They usually don't even slow down. Yeah. We're not going to deal with these crises with all of these geared up guys in armored vehicles. Yeah. We're going to deal with these crises with people who have the time to get out to connect with people and to help them learn to protect themselves. It's important to note that when we work with a community, we aren't working with a blank slate. Communities have already developed approaches and methods of protecting themselves that have been honed over the generations and they have traditions. And so it's not a matter of capacity building. It's a matter of capacity enhancement and working with them to see what, if anything, they might need uh, to address the growing threats that they're facing. And so it's very much being there in support of what they're already doing and seeing if there's anything else uh, that we can add uh, to to support them. In, and what what about that? Me, I mean, is that because they get isolated, or is it because they don't? Nobody takes any notice of them. Uh, yes, it can be because they're isolated. It can be because they're not respected. It can be because they're overrun. Uh, it can be because uh, Westerners have come in and literally run over them. Uh, it can be because they're patriarchal societies mm. where the role of women in holding together the community has not been recognized. Right. And so it's a matter of helping to lift that role up and support what's already being done, yeah. but is, has been sublimated. For example, in uh, a village called Pibor in South Sudan, 
uh, our team was there once uh, and it, there was, it was right after there'd been a vicious attack. And so there was a community security meeting and our team sat in on it and it was all men. And so after the meeting, Lisa asked, uh, well, where are the, where are the women? And she was politely told, well, security is men's work. And so our team mm. sat for a few days and listened and asked questions of like, when you want something done, who do you talk to? A woman by the name of Mary, her name kept coming up. And I, I got to meet Mary. Yeah. And so after a few days, they went and talked to Mary. You know, what were the security need, needs? And she said that women were being routinely raped by government soldiers wow. who were walking through the Payan, the, the yeah. little village. And they walked through the Payam on the way to their barracks. Wow. And in South Sudan, barracks are, are a series of huts where the soldiers live. And that they often are drunk. And that the women uh, were being raped at the community garden and at the water point. And so that the community garden was not being tended. Mm. And so that was having a concept of the vegetables were not being harvested or not being grown. As they talked, Lisa and the team asked, well, you know, uh, should we have a conversation about this and have a community meeting? And Mary said, tell me the date and time or okay. the place and time. Yeah. And so they said some time and Mary came walking up the road with 70 women. Wow. That's amazing. And what they established were, was a very simple protection system based upon what we call a phone tree. Mm -hmm. One person calls two people. Yeah. They each call people and not everyone in the PIAM had a mobile phone, mm -hmm. but there was a, there was a cellular relay tower. And so really everyone was within about 200 meters of someone who had yeah. a mobile phone. And so they set all this up and then they identified indicators. And usually it was drunk teachers headed for the water point or yeah. for the garden. And once they identified that, someone would call and the yeah. phone would up. And so what their response was that they would call our team yeah. who was staying nearby and a group of women and our team would either go to the water point or to the garden. Mm -hmm. And seeing that would walk on. They eliminated rape. Amazing. And an uh, interesting side effect was there was uh, a battalion of UN peacekeepers who were living just a couple kilometers away. Yeah. And when they saw this happening, we convinced them to start just doing routine patrols, just to drive right. around yeah. and make their presence known. And then we convinced them to start collecting their water at the water point. And so that established their yeah. visible presence. Yeah. And 
the women also found this very funny that men would be collecting water and that further it, the government soldiers did not want to look bad in front of these UN peacekeepers. Yeah. And so when I was there, which was about four months after this began, yeah. and it was on Independence Day, I stood next to an officer of the Sudanese People's Liberation Army who had come to teach the soldiers about gender-based violence prevention. No, that's amazing. When I stood next to each other and watched a, a football game that was being played during the holiday yeah. and talked about this whole thing. And he was there because of Mary and that prevention team. Yeah, yeah. And it all happened when you go back to the... Yeah security meeting and Lisa asking where are the women yeah and the women were there yeah and they knew what to amazing uh, so it's so important so, that the, so much of this seems to be about listening to people and actually of sort of being acknowledging that they've got so it sounds a bit like some of the tools are things that people don't even realize they could do so it, it, it's to me, it sounds a little bit like when we train people to do nonviolent resistance, that people know that they want to complain and they don't want to change something, but they need some help with understanding what the tools are about what they could do. And understanding their agency. Yeah. That they can make a difference in the situation because so often people have been treated as objects. Yeah. And be be have been really pounded into them that they cannot make a difference. Wow. When in fact they make a difference all the time. They do. And it's just, and, it, and being able to have that voice. I like the idea that you have a community security meeting because it makes it sound like security is something that the community should be bothered about and not just the military. Yeah. And, and I, I have been, told that the that there is a difference here that safety is something the community does security is something that's imposed so <laughs> I, I think there's a difference there okay um, yeah yeah so if you're safe in your community yeah right so you've watched this field change and grow over quite a long time what do you think are some of the big questions facing it at the moment? I mean, you've talked about the growing risk and maybe the growing need that isn't yet met. Are there some other big questions that we that they people need to be or are asking about? One question is how can unarmed civilian protection and accompaniment be used as a tool to support community safety and protection? and also mutual safety. So it's and not just one on their own, yeah. Yeah, and there's some very interesting work that's being done in New York, in the US, among the Asian and Pacific Islander American community. And one of the chants there is, who protects us, we protect us. Ooh. And, um, that's powerful, the, isn't it? Yes. And the attacks on uh, American, Asian, and Pacific Islander people have skyrocketed. 
over the last couple of years. And that's been intentionally encouraged by former President Trump and by other white supremacists. Mm -hmm. And so it is a matter of uh, working with communities on self-protection and mutual protection. And so Nonviolent Peace Force has been uh, training thousands of people in uh, mutual protection. And that's a question of how does UCP support that kind of work and work closely with communities? Because the old model that we started actually NP with training, sending well-trained cadres of internationals into communities. Um, While that's important in areas of acute uh, crisis conflicts, that's not sustainable. And so how do we use that as a multiplier? And the questions of Scale and sustainability are something that have to trouble us constantly. But that sounds and, like the mutuality and things like that is is you found it everywhere from your stories and what you've talked about. You've already seen that people are capable of this. Of course. And so actually finding a way to bring that out, I mean, it's part of what we, where UCP and Unarmed Civilian Protection is going is bringing out all of that mutual power for creating safe safety or safe spaces. I'm not sure. Yes. And I do, I do want to emphasize that another thing that we've learned is that unarmed civilian protection and accompaniment is a systems approach that as we did the regional good practices workshops i remember after a couple of them questions were asked well when does this work how does this work and we would frequently get the response well it depends we were getting frustrated until it dawned on us of course it's contextual (laughs) Of course, that's what people are saying, that it's contextual. It's highly dependent upon the current conditions. Yeah. And therefore, unarmed civilian protection has to be extremely nimble. Yeah. And has to change in the mix and the proportion of methodologies that we use mm-hmm. and that that can only happen when you're in close communication with the communities because they're the only ones who really can translate as to what's happening and what needs to change. And so I don't want to overly romanticize self-protection because that can get dangerous and it can get a lot of people killed. There are times when internationals are needed and we should not shy away from that Mm -hmm. in the name of some kind of political correctness yeah if that's required then we need to do it yeah and we would err on the side of being called colonialists yeah i'd rather be called that and have some people live and so there are times where only local people are not going to be a deterrent 
Yeah. And we need to recognize that. Yeah. But there are lots of other times when internationals are not going to be deterrents. Yeah. We have to closely assess that and then respond accordingly. I always find it that it's very important to not go, well, we empower communities and then we just leave them to this by themselves. Um, because actually the importance of it is that they are either connected to other people or growing their own power or sort of changing what they do, but not feeling like they've been left alone. So it's not an excuse to, to leave them. So, yeah, that's brilliant. Because it's absolutely, it's, it's huge potential, isn't it? Of like what people yes. can do. And sometimes the physical expression of solidarity is very important. Yeah. And we've been with surveying the various UCP and accompaniment groups that solidarity is very strong in terms of importance. It ranks about two thirds of the organizations say that that's an important expression of their wow. work. And it is so powerful, isn't it? Because you see it across a whole range of things where people actually, once they connect and, and listen and support one another, those, yep. those relationships and networks are so much stronger. And I'm not alone here. Exactly. Yeah, that's so powerful. Who would you bring into this conversation if you could? Not this conversation, the conversation about how we better do protection and make communities safer. Gandhi and Baird Rustin, Christina Figuettis. Wow, so bring in some, bring in some of the really big... Chakan. Big, big, some of the big non-violence ideas on how we change things. Probably Maud Royden. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, take the hand. So we need big ideas. Yeah. Yeah, we need, we need this to be big. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, take, so it sounds like, like non-violence is really important for you in thinking about how this works. If we're not non-violent at it, 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 it doesn't work. And, you know, Rachel, that, that was interesting. When we surveyed the various UCP practitioners, 95 plus percent of them identified nonviolence as a central pil pillar to their work. Wow. And so that's, that's shared across the field. That is, that's really important to talk about, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. This isn't, this isn't a, a, a toolkit you take off the shelf. This is something which is about the power that we have um, and the way we work together. And it's a central pillar. Central pillar to it. That's fantastic. Eric, Erica Chenoweth would be another person I'd bring in. So we've got some more big conversations to have. Yeah. yeah. And I bring in you and Barit, Christina. Yeah. <laughs> okay. okay. So this is turning into quite a party that we're going to have to grow this movement. Tiffany. Yeah. <laughs> Gary Slutkin. There must be a ton of people. Yeah. yeah. And that's what's exciting. And we're getting more and more every day. Yeah. That's, that's one of the hopeful things. That is hopeful. There over 60 of us, uh, organizations that are doing this kind of work, and that's the ones that we know about. That's amazing. Well, you've, you've talked a lot about sort of like this is so hopeful that we can do this. But I think actually the whole notion that there is a way of communities and civilians working and, and protecting one another, because I, I agree with you. I think there's going to be some testing times coming 
um, for people and the people that they live near and the people they live with. And so if some of if some of what we're uh, talking about can be brought into that, that would be very exciting. Um, yeah. But do you know what? This would be a fascinating, really lovely conversation, Mel. Thank you very much um, for, for sharing that and your stories with us. You're welcome. Yeah, it's good <laughs> talking, Rachel. Yeah, it's fantastic. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for joining us. Come back soon.